I am excited this morning because we are going to be jumping into um, one of the new disciplines. We've taken, if you've noticed, we've taken basically a whole semester to just work on and focus on the first two. And primarily give the, the weight to the heart uh, the first semester. So um, that's, that's by design, but we only figured that out that design after trying to do it a different way. I think I've told you. We um, originally planned to just do equal messages on all six disciplines, thinking that all of them are important, and they are. And after having done it the first year, as we were in small groups together talking and the guys were wrestling through discipline one and discipline two, we just kept coming back to you know, needing to encourage each other and, and strengthen each other and counsel each other um, to you know, just really shepherd our hearts well and our homes well that we decided you know, when we do this again, we're just going to be top heavy or bottom heavy, whichever way you look at it, on uh, disciplines one and two. Now, as we start to move into, you know, the, 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 the next discipline, discipline three on the ministry, um, you're going to start seeing some things. It's going to start clicking and coming together in ways that maybe it hasn't even yet. Sometimes you gain perspective on discipline one, on, on shepherding your heart, and on discipline two, shepherding your home. There's some things you don't learn about it until you actually see somebody ministering with the gospel and the emphasis they put back on disciplines one and two. And that's a unique perspective to get in and, and, and see it from. But um, maybe by way of just reviewing this morning, I can tell you about a, a, a conversation I've had recently with a, with a woman in the church. She came to me and she said, uh, I have a friend who, a girl, a Christian girl, wants to date um, a Christian guy she's, she hasn't met. They, they just recently met him, and so she really doesn't know him, and he doesn't really know her. And so the woman in our church is asking me, what, um, what kinds of questions should I tell my girlfriend to ask him if they're going to spend time together? Can you, can, you guess, I mean, can you guess the first thing that came to my mind? Yeah, number one, as a woman, sit with him and say, over coffee, tell me what happens when you read your Bible. Talk to me about what kind of, uh, what's your goal when you have God's word open before you? What are you after? Um, get him to talk about as much as possible about where he's at with his heart and the word of God. Uh, because that's what you need to know, especially if you're a woman, which none of you are. But if you were a woman and you have to put your life under a man, there's only one kind of man that a woman should put her life under, and it is that kind of man. And you see God's mercy on our wives, because we haven't always been that, but we need to be that kind of man. And so she needs to get to that, and then I would start asking them questions about, who do you, who do you live with? You live with your parents? You live with some roommates? What's it like there? What, what goes on in that home? I'd want to hear about his, his convictions about how he deals with the people that he lives with. And um, so uh, it, you know, those are the kinds of things that I think are protective for a, a, a woman. If, if that's a guy who's 
thoughtful and caring and bringing the gospel to the people that he lives with, that would make me, it, I would hope that would make that, that young lady go, you know what? I'd give anything to be under him in his house. You understand? And so, again, what we're after, discipline one, is to shepherd our hearts with the word of God so that we might draw close to the God of the word and know him and love him and worship him, um, be more faithful to him, obey him. Um, I don't know if you guys know Rick Holland, but Rick Holland is a, he's a he's at Grace Community Church in L.A. He um, is the executive pastor under John MacArthur. He... Uh, is the one who has kind of head up the, the conference called Resolved that we go to. It's like a church retreat for us. Um, he's writing a book right now um, that's all about the fact that, that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples and that his disciples are to know him. And um, he pointed out a John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father. And I've always focused on that part of it. And just that obedience is love. And love means obedience. And that's what I try to focus on. But the last part says, and I will disclose myself to him. What is that? Jesus says to his disciples, I, in your loving obedience to me, you will find me revealing myself to you. That's what I want. I want that. I want, whatever that is, that's what I want. Um, that unique thing that only Jesus can do as we love him and obey him is to. That should be what is the cry of our hearts more than anything. That will make you very fit for heaven, because when you get to heaven, the, the main thing is Jesus. So let's bring a little bit of that into our lives now. Let's get as much of that as we can now by shepherding our hearts to come to the place where he has most clearly revealed himself. And that is the word of God. And so we come to it to get him. Um, what a sad thing if we come to the word of God and walk away and we didn't get him. That's sad. We don't want to be that kind of man. Um, that then needs to make an impact on our homes, right? That should make a big impact on the way that our wives um, find that they are cared for by us, our, our children, our roommates, our parents, if we live at home. It should make an impact on the people we live with. That is a life then that's full of integrity, um, consistency, so that when you step outside of that home into the lives of others, Discipline 3 today, um, and people get to begin to get to know you, and they watch you, and they, they see you sin, and they see you be obedient, and if they happen to step into your home, they're not going to go, this isn't something different out here than what I saw at home. This is what's so good about being in each other's homes and being involved with each other's families. Um, spending time together like that. Um, and the ministry that we have with other people, it has to center on the gospel, as you're going to see today uh, through Paul. Discipline four, qualifications, right? We're pointing you guys towards the, the qualifications for deacons and, and even elder, but in particular deacon. Um, we will take a look at that in January, I think. We, we'll get to discipline four. We'll talk about Acts 6 first. 
about what, what it was that was going on in the early church that made the apostles who were really functioning as elders in that one church in Jerusalem, that huge church, uh, maybe made up of you know countless house churches, but they were functioning as elders. What made them pick a layer of leadership that would complement their leadership? So there was an overlap uh, that was just redundant ministry. And then we'll, then we'll jump into 1 Timothy 3 and take a look at the qualifications for deacons there. Um, and then we will move to uh, Discipline 5, which is the hermeneutic, and we'll really finish, we'll kind of postpone that one more towards the end of the year, and finish with three lessons on that, uh, just to really begin to prep you for, okay, now, now that you, as you're working on uh, establishing spiritual disciplines that make you into the kind of man that, that when you open the Bible, you really want to know God. Now let's equip ourselves with some uh, rules for interpretation that ensure that when we are in God's word, we're handling it rightly. I, I'm far more concerned that you first become the right kind of man, wanting the word of God the right way, and then get equipped with some rules for interpreting, than reversing it and saying, let me give you some rules for interpreting, and now then let's talk about how you become the right kind of I think it's... I think you can read the Bible. I think you can get what it means for the most part if you read it like we normally read literature. We read it normally. If it appears that it, the normal standard words that he's using there don't make sense, well, then we understand that he's not speaking in a literal way. He must mean something figurative or whatever. That's just normal interpretation. It's common sense interpretation. You don't sit there and have conversations with guys throughout the day uh, and they begin to talk and you take their literal meaning and construct it, reconstruct it into some fanciful figurative thing. And you don't like it when people do that with your words. When we communicate, there's an assumption that I understand what you're saying. It doesn't take rocket science. Um, the only time we get really funny and weird about that is when we want to come and interpret the Bible or other important documents that stand as authority uh, before us, like our Constitution, like our Bible, uh, by the way, the Bible is more important than our Constitution. just want to make sure that's clear. <laughs> you might want to write that one down. That's free this morning. Anyway, all right, so then uh, Discipline 6 is uh, the, the vision, the biblical vision and the gospel purpose of Grace Bible Church, and that's what we want to focus on while we're, uh, we're pouring all these other disciplines into that one because you're at Grace Bible Church. You're not at other... East Valley churches or wherever in, in the valley um, you're here and we want to make sure all these are running towards the, the, the biblical vision and the gospel purpose that we're after. So with that said, we should take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Will you turn there with me? And as usual, hopefully consistent with what you're doing as well, when we open God's Word, one of the first things we should do, I would say the first thing we should do, and if we catch ourselves halfway into our reading, hopefully we'll catch ourselves doing this. If we didn't do it at the beginning, we should pray and um, recognize that what's more important than anything is not that we um, get the five points necessarily that I have for you to look at, but that we, we actually get God in them and what he has to say about gospel ministry. So let's pray. Let's ask God for help. 
Heavenly Father, we do ask you for help. We confess to you our weakness. We confess to you our neediness, our frailty. That, Lord, we will miss important truths even when they come and bump right into us. There's a slowness to our our hearts and there's a, a numbness in this flesh that we live in and dwell in. In fact, it was so bad that when that was all that there was to us, just flesh, we, we had ears that couldn't hear you. We had eyes that could not see you. We, we could not perceive you at all. You had to come and invade us. And you had to awaken us with your spirit. And then our eyes could see. And then our ears could hear. And so, Father, as we are in this mixed condition of being awakened and made new and given new ears and new eyes, yet we still see that we are prone to hardness of heart and prone to slowness of faith to believe your word. And and so, God, we, in that condition, come before you and ask you to be powerful in our hearts this morning, in our minds. Make us eager to receive your word. Make us eager to draw near to you. Reveal to us what you want about this third discipline, about what gospel ministry really looks like. Thank you for inscripturating uh, this example of Paul and what he says, Lord. I pray um, that these, honestly, these shocking words of Paul this morning would, would really sink in deeply into each one of our hearts and that you would make us into men who want to be the right kind of men as we minister the gospel. So, God, hear our prayer. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, what I'm going to give for you, uh, give to you this morning is five ministry statements, basically just observations from 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10. So we should probably read the chapter, all 10 verses, just to get a sense of what's going on here, get the full sense. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you. And there's three key components to his giving of thanks, and they come in the ING words that follow. Um, In English, we'd call them gerunds or participles. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Here's the first one. Making mention of you in our prayers. Secondly, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And three, verse four, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And where I would like to focus is in his explanation that follows His explanation of of God's choice of them. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything 
For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So this is really Paul's explanation for how he knows that they are chosen of God. And we're going to start with number one. Ministry has only one message. There, there's no other message for you in, in the gospel ministry than the gospel. And Paul affirms positively here that the gospel did indeed come. But you can tell by the way he words it that that's, he's, it's his leading concern, but it's not the full weighted concern that he has on his mind. Look at what he says in verse four, uh, 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only. You only word things like that when it's important to say that, but you really have another point that you're going to be getting at and emphasizing. And so I want you to see what the Apostle Paul, that's right, the Apostle Paul, who loves the gospel, he's not de-emphasizing the gospel, but he's saying there is something that you Thessalonians need to get that, is, yes, it is the gospel, but wait till you hear what I have to say beyond that, okay? Um, what he is saying is our gospel did come to you. It just didn't come to you in word only. Okay? Do you understand that? That's important. It did come to you. It just didn't come to you in word only. Now, what I want to do is I want to sidestep for a moment. I want to take you back to uh, Romans 1. Okay? I'm going to give you a way to look at the whole letter of Romans, because what I want you to do is I want you to see Paul's manner with the gospel. Go to Romans chapter 1. This is Paul's manner with the gospel. This is the way Paul thinks about the gospel. This gospel did come to the Thessalonians. It just didn't come to them in, in, in words only. Okay? But let's talk about what Paul thinks about in regards to the gospel. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 11. And I don't want you to miss verses 11 and 12. Paul says, For I long to see you, believers in Rome, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, so that you may be established. Let me tell you what I mean. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, among you. So Paul wants to be among these believers, and there needs to be a mutual encouragement each of us by the other's faith. So if each of them by the other's faith are encouraged, that means the whole group is Christian. Right? How would Paul be encouraged by their faith if they weren't believing in Jesus Christ? So who is he going who's he longing to go see? What kind of people? Believers. Right? Drop down to verse 15. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you, also who are in Rome. Now, what does that mean? Here's how, in our minds, we probably would initially just gut reflex re react to that. Oh, Paul's going to go hang out with the Christians, and then what he wants to do is he wants to go out from there to preach the gospel to those who haven't heard in Rome. But that's not what he's been saying. 
I want to come to you. I'm eager to impart to you. I want to see you become established. I want to see you be strengthened in Christ. And for this part, I'm eager to come to you to preach the gospel to you. Now, what's, what makes that weird to us is in our minds, we've done this really unfortunate thing with the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has become fire insurance. It's what keeps you from going to hell. It is what converts you. It has the power to save you when you were lost. It has the power to rescue you. That is true. Never de-emphasize that. Never lose that. But what the problem is, is that's only at best half of the gospel. The gospel also continues in your life to strengthen you, to establish you. That's at least what Paul is saying. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And when we hear that, we go see conversion. Well, I'll tell you what, salvation includes conversion, and it includes a whole lot more than conversion too. Sanctification, even glorification, right? It's the power. The gospel is the power for that. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. In it also is the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. You want to live by faith? You need the gospel today. Not just to get in, but to keep living. Now, that's chapter one. I'm going to come to Christians. We're going to be encouraged by each other's faith. And when I'm with you, I am going to preach the gospel to you. Now, go to chapter 16. Last chapter. Down to verse um, 25. How does he close the letter? Two Christians. Now to him who is able to establish you. Here's the same word. And to establish you according to my what? Gospel. <coughs> and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures and the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever and ever or forever. Amen. So Paul's thinking, you, you believers, you need to be established. And the, there's only one standard by which you should be established and that's the gospel. Now I'm, I'm coming to you who believe already in, the, in Jesus and I'm going to preach to you the gospel. Okay, so chapter one, Paul says, I'm going to come, I'm going to preach the gospel to you. Chapter 16, may God establish you according to my gospel. Now here's a question for you. Move in one chapter this way. Move in one chapter this way. What's, what's all of this? <coughs> Paul says, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to preach the gospel to you. And now may God establish you according to my gospel. But now let me set that aside because you're all saved. And now let me just get on to other stuff. I'm gonna, let me get on to doctrine. Is that what he's doing in chapters 2 to 15? What's chapters 2 to 15? The gospel. We might be, it might be a little bit more better to say gospel theology. Right? Theology that has dependence on the gospel. Theology that is reflective of the gospel. But Paul isn't all of a sudden in chapter 1, verse 18, when he gets to, for the wrath of God is being revealed. When he says that, he's not all of a sudden left the gospel behind. 
in his thoughts, to move on to other things. That's not what he's doing. He is fleshing out the gospel. Okay? So, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul says, "Um, our gospel did come to you. It just didn't come in words only. And I just want, it's important for you to understand that when Paul comes and we're talking about gospel ministry, we are not just talking about evangelism where you're going to go and hopefully preach the gospel and people will respond in repentance and faith. We want that. But gospel ministry goes even beyond that to Christians. It continues on with Christians. So for Paul, the leading concern as he reflects on his ministry with the Thessalonians is indeed that the gospel engaged them. Here's the proof in the letter. Go to chapter 2, verse 2. But after we had suffered, already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Look at verse 4. Um, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. And we spoke it to you. Verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. See, he's doing it again. We gave to you the gospel. We imparted it to you. But not only that, what's the next thing he says? Ourselves. We we impart ourselves to you. And that's what he's going to get back to in chapter 1 in just a moment. You're going to see. And then verse 9. We proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So Paul is very... Look, this is the Apostle Paul that you know and love in Scripture. He's only got one thing on his mind... I only have one message. It's the gospel. And it is a very, very thick, deep, wide gospel. It it can get you saved. And you know what else it can do? It can keep you growing in Christ. It will establish you in your faith. So as you and I, as we step into one another's lives here, this has to be your leading concern. You only have one message. You only have one message. And listen, if... If the gospel is that big to be able to not just convert you, but it continues on to establish you in the faith, then that's the message you want. But if you and I reduce the message of the gospel down to repent and believe, and then you graduate from that and move on to something else, then it sounds like we need how many messages? We need the gospel to get in, but then we maybe need a different message once we're in. But see, that's not the way Paul thought of the gospel at all. There's only one message for all of your life. It is the gospel. It's only one message. So as you step into one another's lives, it doesn't matter if you've been walking with Christ for 40 years. You need to have the gospel brought to you by other people, by other brothers in in the faith. So we need to help each other engage uh, with the fullness of the gospel. How sad it would be if, if we stepped into one another's lives, right? and gave to one another the impression that the gospel was only um, necessary to convert you, but now it hangs on your wall like a diploma. Oh yeah, that was important back then. It meant a lot to me, but I, you know, the only time I think of it now is when I um, see it on the wall and I remember those good times, you know, how important that was. That, that is not the gospel. The gospel is not a diploma that hangs on a wall. Okay? Gospel is, is your food for today. Now, before uh, we move on, I want you to see what Paul says about the gospel in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, how he describes it. For our gospel. Our gospel. You know what that is? That's ownership. 
Paul owns that gospel. Do you remember back in Romans 16.25, he said, who can establish you according to my gospel? Okay, Paul owned the gospel. Now, how, how can he say that? If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. Look at that real quick with me. Let's make it clear so that we know what Paul is not saying. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which, I al- uh, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What is Paul saying about the gospel? Look, I received it. So when Paul says it's my gospel, when he says it's our gospel, he's not saying I invented it. It's mine in the sense that I am the inventor and it is my, my, what I've got a patent on. It's not my invention. He's saying it's mine in the sense that I've received it. It's been given to me. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 2, if you go back there, he says we were entrusted with this gospel. Remember that? Chapter 2, verse 4, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So it is Paul's in the sense that he owns it. Maybe maybe the sense is that it owns him, and it's his. And that needs to be something of, can you imagine, I'm not really sure in any conversation anywhere, I even slipped saying my gospel or our gospel. And there's a sense in which I want to be able to say that in the right way. You and I have been entrusted with this gospel, too. In fact, the only this is amazing. Why would God do this? Why The, the gospel does not even yet exist in the next generation beyond us, the, the people who are just now being born. It doesn't even exist in them yet. And the only way it will get there is what? If you and I act like it has been given to us and we got to do something with it, right? Is that right? God did that. God has a, another generation, Lord willing, who's going to hear the gospel and he put it in your hands? He put it in mine? Wow. That's a gutsy God. Um, thankfully, he knows that he's the one who's working in us and will be faithful to do his work in us. But I want there to be a sense in you and in me that, you know, this is our gospel. Not not in the sense of we crafted it, but we've been given this gospel. Um, There needs to be an aroma of that that comes off. So, our gospel did come to you, Paul says. It just didn't come to you in word only, right? So that's his leading concern. That's the concern he leads with. Now, what concern follows the leading concern? Look what he says in chapter 1, verse 5. We did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. Number two, ministry requires an uncommon messenger. That's what he's going to move towards next. You know what kind of men we prove to be. What do you want to talk about? Let me talk to you about this. The word came to you, certainly. It just didn't come to you in word only. In fact, let's talk about the kind of men we were. 
The kind of men we proved to be among you. So ministry has only one message. Guys, here's, here's what you've got to get today. This is it. Ministry has only one message. You have nothing else to say to offer anybody else except the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have nothing else to say. And also, in conjunction with that, inseparable from that, ministry requires an uncommon man to go with it. That is what Paul is saying. Let me talk to you about the kind of men we were. Okay? And this is what carries so much of the weight through the rest of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2. So 1 Thessalonians, it's very interesting. 1 Thessalonians has frustrated me at times in the past. Because Paul talks about the gospel. We came, we preached to you the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. But he doesn't really ever anywhere in this letter say, now let me tell you what the gospel is. Jesus Christ crucified. You get near it at the end of chapter 1 here. Um, you repented. There's repentance mess, uh, mentioned that he saves us from the wrath to come. That's about as detailed as he, he gets in terms of the contents of the, of the gospel. It's not Paul's concern in this letter to open up a treatise like he does in Romans on what the gospel is. But what is a concern as he starts off this letter is, I've got to talk to you guys about the kind of men we were. And mostly that is, that's the case because there are some terrible accusations floating around Thessalonica. And they don't center on, uh, they're, they're not slander statements about the gospel. They're slander statements about Paul. And so Paul has to defend himself. And so he is setting himself forward with the gospel as a, an uncommon messenger. So he came to them. Now watch this in verse 5. This is really interesting. Um, he says, the gospel came to them. But it did not come to you in word only, but it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Three prepositional phrases, okay? Three prepositional phrases. Now, what do these three phrases describe? You've got two options, really. Uh, you, they are either describing the gospel message or they are describing the gospel messenger. Now, back up, let's think about number one. If they describe the gospel message, this is what is the idea then. Well, the message came to you in power. And the message came to you in the Holy Spirit. And the message came to you with full conviction. Now, theologically, all three of those statements are true. The word of God, if anybody's going to be saved, it needs to come in power, right? If anybody's going to get saved, it needs to come in the Holy Spirit. And it needs to come with full conviction. It does. That, those are three theologically true statements. It's just that this passage is not teaching those theological statements. Okay? What is being described here is the gospel messenger. That's what Paul is saying. You say, now, but how do you know that? Well, look at, look at verse 5 carefully. Paul is saying that he and his co-laborers came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Look at, the, look at how these three phrases are sandwiched between two other really important statements. How does the verse start off? The gospel did not come to you in word only. Okay, so is he putting the emphasis on, now let me tell you what the word of, of, in, in, of the gospel was. No, remember how we talked about, when you say, look, 
when your wife says, uh, hey, did you, um, did you clean up the house? You can say, I didn't clean up the house only. I even bathed the kids and put them down and they had dinner and everything. See, your point is, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I did that. But let me tell you, let me get to, let me, let me really impress you, right? So when you do that, when you use the word only in that sense, you're not about to describe what that thing is that you only did. You're getting on to something else. So when he has these three prepositional phrases, he's not using them to describe that the word came to you in word. The gospel came to you in, in word. And look what the last phrase is on verse 5, or the last statement on verse 5. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You see, what Paul is doing is he's focusing them beyond just the content of the gospel message. So when Paul thinks back, this is what Paul's saying, when he thinks back on when he came to them, when he thinks back on his gospel ministry with them, he remembers three descriptive elements. He remembers that he came to them and there was power. His interaction with them, man, there was, there, was, there was the power of God going on among them. And he remembers that his coming was in the Holy Spirit. It was soaking, dripping in the Spirit of God, that interaction together. And he remembers that when we came, we had fullness of confidence. We had full conviction about what it was that we were doing as gospel messengers. That's what we had. That's what he's describing. Paul's point here in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 is to really get after describing the gospel messenger. Now that is that rocks your world a little bit. Those of us who, I mean, we want to defend the gospel and we want the gospel to be loved and cherished and we want substitutionary atonement and, and expiation and propitiation and all of the many Asians under God or whatever. I mean, we want that. We want to defend that, right? And that's right and that's true. But what Paul is after here is saying, look, you've got to be the right kind of man in ministry. And all of the accusations that came against him about the kind of man that he was gives him an opportunity to talk to us this morning about how important it is for you to be the right kind of man. For me to be the right kind of man. You understand? Paul is saying, an uncommon messenger is one who comes in power, and one who comes in the Holy Spirit, and one who comes fully convinced of what he's doing and what he's saying. I want to be, do you want to be that kind of man? I mean, look, I'll be honest with you. When you, when you hear a three descriptive phrases like that, that makes me think of, I set my sights for myself this last week way too low. I was not thinking, you know, uh, power, God. Power. My relationship's power. With my wife and with my kids as I'm bringing the gospel to my family, power, please. Power. Your power. The Holy Spirit, too. And I need full conviction about what's going on here. My goodness. What though, what though if we did think about that every day? What if that was the focal point of your life? Bringing the gospel to your wife and to your family and to your church and to those beyond your church. What if you were thinking, God, your power today, please. Please. In this conversation, in this meeting, 
your spirit, full conviction. He knows God. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. your Bible in the morning before your day starts and go out into your day and next thing you know, I mean just a matter of even just just less than hours, it's like did I even read? What did, even while you're reading? Why is that? I love Piper's analogy. Piper's analogy is, is he says my bucket has a hole in it. Mine's, mine's been shot by a shotgun. It's got holes. Every, it's just buckshot hole. And you fill it up and it's just constantly draining out. See, I mean, we need to be men who are, who, who, are, who are about the gospel and you have to keep it coming all day long or else... Mark, you have something? I, I uh, seem to uh, the context here with Paul and I can't, I can't stop thinking about the baptism and the membership Sunday a couple weeks ago because just testimony after testimony of religious people who got saved and Paul, Paul was a very religious guy and so he's seems to be saying seems he's, he's just like me talking to my parents after I got saved and then through the religious family. Uh, and, and they were just so happy that that, that works for me. And, and, and I couldn't say this right away because days into my salvation, I couldn't say, you, you have seen me in power and
our, our refrigerators and our freezers deceive us. I, I, I view my life as I'm more, I'm more of a freezer, I'm more of a refrigerator, because I got stuff in it. I, I, I got stuff in me. I, I stocked myself up this morning. It's all good. And that's not what we are. That's not what you are. Um, we are buckets with holes in them, and they don't hold their stuff. But you know what? Gospel is like fluid in you, and sin in that bucket is like a hard dirt clod. It doesn't go through the holes, but if you pour the gospel fluid on it, it'll break down and it'll wash out. But if you don't, sin won't pass through, it'll stay. And you've got to constantly wash yourself with the water of the word. Um, So how do you become that kind of man? Well, I hope that you have an idea. Well, probably one of the best things you can do is shepherd your heart uh, to the word of God to meet with God. Um, and say, God, your power, your spirit, and full conviction, please. Does that make you into an arrogant man? Just wanting that, is that an arrogant thing? Does that make you abrasive? Chapter 2, verse 7. We, in small group, looked at this on Thursday night. We proved to be gentle among you. Here's the guy with power. Here's the guy with the Holy Spirit. Here's the guy with full conviction. I was like a a nursing mother among you. Gentle. Protecting you with my gentleness. I fond affection for you. Well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives. You'd become so dear to us. Does that sound like a man of power to you? Yeah, that, that should. Because that's Jesus. Man of power. The most gentle man, meek man on the earth. Wow. So it is not going to make you... So when you're, when you're in a sense, I hope, in, in, a, in a spirit-driven way, craving for God's power in your life and in your relationships, it's not going to make you... It's not an arrogant request. It, can it be? Yes. You can twist anything, and so can I. But it, it's not intended to be that. That's not God's intention. There is a way to want the power of God in your relationships as you minister the gospel to people. There's a way to want the Spirit to be what is clearly on your mind and on their minds as you are talking with them. Um, There's a way to want all that and to be gentle and to be like a nursing mother tenderly caring for children. There's a way to do that. What we want when we're done walking away with people, here's what, I, I walk away from meetings and conversations sometimes and I just... I put my face in my hands when I get back to my office or I get in the car and I just, I ask God for forgiveness because I feel like what was, what they walked away with and the thing that, the way that I talked to them, I was, I feel like that what was on their mind the most as we left that conversation was me. And I don't want that. I want to walk away thinking of God's power the Spirit of God was meeting with us, involved. I want, I want those kinds of... I want to be thought of, if I'm thought of at all, as gentle, tenderly caring. Um, but we, we need to crave for God's presence and His power in our ministry far more. And you need to prove to be that kind of man. No, it's not. That's good. 
So shepherd your heart, men, to the word of God, to get the gospel, to get Jesus. Plead with God for his power. Plead for greater conviction in ministry. Third ministry statement. Ministry involves imitation. You're going to see what what the emphasis is on here, what it continues to be. Verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul's saying, we were a certain kind of man and you imitated us. So the, the focus is on, he wants to put their eyes on him and the ministry team that he came with. Now, he says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul is not saying here that when I was with you, I gave you two different examples to follow, to imitate. You became imitators of us, and then differently, you became an imitator also of the Lord. That's not what he's saying, right? Um, Paul's pattern of life was not out of alignment. It was not disjoint from Christ's pattern of life. His life was not divergent from Christ's life. His life was rather on the same trajectory as Christ's life. And that needs to be your prayer. That needs to be my prayer as uh, men of God bringing the gospel to bear on other people's lives. That, That we want to be so aligned with Christ that if this is me and this is the Lord, when you look at me, by imitating me, what you're going to find out is you're actually imitating the Lord, right? Not because I'm the Lord, but because my life is in alignment with the Lord. And that's what you need to be. You put your life before your kids that way. You put your life before your coworkers that way. You put your life in alignment with Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Scott, are you old enough in your faith? I'll do it with my children. <laughs> it's hard. That is exactly what Paul He commanded the Corinthians, imitate me. Yes. And there needs to be, I don't know, you, the, the, the older you get in Christ and the older that you get in, and more mature you get in the gospel, the more you will feel unworthy to be imitated. Paul, this is the same guy who says, I am the foremost of sinners. 1 Timothy 1. Imitate me. Okay? Those two things must coexist. You should only imitate that kind of guy who says, I'm the foremost. Um, but, the, you know, but Paul also was one of the most holy guys walking around. And that's what he means. So um, there needs to be a way that you and I, that we get to that point, that if we're discipling somebody, that we're meeting with others, that if we're leading others, we could say, follow me. Mm. 
Just how to how to uh, respond to your sin with the gospel. This is, I mean, you. This is what you would want to hopefully have very central in, in what you would want somebody to imitate you in. And, and Dave, you're you're right. I mean, when you're asking somebody to imitate you, you're not just asking them to imitate um, deeds or things that you'll go do as a believer. Yes, but but primarily, you are thinking about how you respond to sin and how you respond to injustice or whatever. But in, in, in regards to your own sin specifically, let's um let just to, just to help it be clear, let's let's think about um let's think about a specific sin, I'll, and I'll just use the one from uh, chapter two. If you look at chapter two, verse um seven, we prove to be gentle among you. Paul says. Let let's say that as I read that, I I come to the conclusion that I'm actually not very gentle. Maybe with my wife or my kids, I, I tend to be aggressive or authoritarian, demanding of those who are under me. Um, how should I respond to that in a gospel with a gospel repentance? First thing that I think you have to do is, is you have to. Um, let me tell you how I would have done it a few years ago. Here's what I would have done a few years ago. I would have felt really guilty and bad before God. God, I, I blew it again. I'm, I'm just I'm such a knucklehead. And I probably would have walked around for a few days moping about it. Um, maybe ignorantly, not intentionally doing this, but recognizing after the fact that maybe I was trying to atone for it. Do, work some penance for it, and the way that I'll do that is through my guilt. Uh, that's very anti-gospel. That's an anti-gospel response to sin. Okay, that's a prideful response to sin because I'm saying I can I can wash this away, and I'll do it with my guilt, and I'll feel badly about it. That's how I would have. And then I would have made promises and resolves to God. I promise to do better. I resolve that I will not be like that anymore and that I will whatever. And then I might have asked, you know, a friend for accountability. Hey, every week I want you to ask me, uh, whenever we talk, I want you to ask me about how I'm doing with my judgment. And that's how I would have fought my sin. looks like uh, for a, a believer in Christ is to, number one, and I'll, I'll, I don't know if these are necessarily one, two, three, four, these can happen in maybe out of order a little bit, but one, I, I should come to the cross and I should immediately recognize in regards to that specific sin of not being gentle or being harsh, that Christ paid for that sin. And so what I would want to rehearse to myself first is the one who said, come to me all who are weary and Heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and follow me, for I am 
gentle and humble in heart. He was only ever gentle and humble in heart. That one who only knew gentleness and humbleness apart on the cross is my harshness. And the, the cup of wrath that God has to pour out on my harshness, on my authoritarianness, my demands that I put on others, is emptied out on the gentle and humble one on the cross in my place. The reason it is done is because God's wrath must be taken away for that sin in Christ to drink that cup bone dry. And the reason that that is done is because I must have my sin taken away out of God's sight and Christ bore it in his body away from God on the cross. <coughs> I just rehearsed that truth, that reality. That I have to lay down underneath me because that is what my life in Christ rests on. Um, I confess it to God as such, and I rest in that truth. Should there be a time of rewards? Sure, you can. You should. You you should feel broken for that, absolutely. But your brokenness should be met very quickly, also with with uh, humble joy that my Savior has borne that away. Paul said some pretty staggering things. I have lived my life up to this day with a clear conscience before men. Really? You say that about Stephen, huh? That's interesting. He had, a, he had an awareness of being clean before God um, that I think is, is, is staggering. But, but that's not all you do in terms of repenting with the gospel. Because that would acknowledge only half of the gospel, if we could speak of it that way. That's what got me saved. But the gospel also says that you have been united with Christ, crucified and buried with him. The old man is passed away. So, God, here's what I would rehearse to myself beyond that. God, you um, united me as a man who likes to use his authority in a demanding, authoritarian way. I was enslaved to that sin, and you have united me in that old man condition where I am a slave to the lack of gentleness. You united that and me to Christ crucified, and I've been buried with him. And the reason you did that is so that you would free me from that sin. I am no longer a slave to the lack of gentleness. I am no longer a slave to harshness and authoritarianism and making demands on people. I'm not a slave to that anymore. And that's only half of it. And the gospel says you raised me up with Christ. And I am a new creature in Christ. I am a new man, which means that this new man has a capacity now in equipping from God to be what? Gentle. In fact, Romans 6 says, I am a slave of God. I am a slave of righteousness. I am a slave of obedience. I am now, in his eyes, because of his work in the gospel in my life, I am a slave to gentleness. So... I rehearsed that under me. Have I done anything yet? Like, made a list of don't do this anymore, start doing that. Have I done? No, I haven't done anything. The only thing I've done is I've come before the cross, I've sat down, and I'm just soaking in it. These are the bedrock promises that God made to me in the gospel. I am not a slave to lack of gentleness anymore. I am, in fact, a slave to gentleness. I need to put off, and I need to put on. Now I, now I come to commands. Now I come to the commands of Christ in the New Testament, and I look, I scour. Okay, now, what, now I'm ready to fortify my life with commands. 
to not do this, to be that. I need to meditate on maybe the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit in me is, is producing this. See, but, but when, when in my former manner of life in Christ, to leapfrog over all of those and just say, okay, God, I feel terrible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be penitent about my sin, uh, where I'm going to you know, try to work penance. I'm, I'm going to try to atone for it with grief and sorrow. And, and I resolve, here's some promises I'm going to put under me. Listen to this one, God. I promise that I will never speak to my kids that way again. Why? That's a good promise, God. I'll stand on that one. And let me make another resolve. I resolve to never be that way with my wife. And I resolve to, to uh, I'm going to put this little verse up on the refrigerator so that I'll see it all the time. And I resolve to do that. And I resolve and I resolve. And we put all the wrong resolves. I put all of the wrong resolves underneath me. And I stood on them. And I... You fall through them all the time because my promises are powerless. But I'm impressed by them to think that they are powerful, unfortunately. And so to have gospel-centered repentance, you've got to go to where the power is. And the power is not in my resolves. It's not in my promises. It's not in your resolves. It's not in your promises. It's in Christ's promises in the gospel. And so you've got to go to the power source and sit there with the power and draw near in that way. And then, once you've done that, now you need a command or two, or three, or, or forty. I don't know how many you need, but you know what? If you, if you skip over that and only give yourself commands, you are setting yourself up for the greatest disappointment of life, because you already broke commands, and now powerlessly you're stepping in and arming yourself with more. That is a recipe for disaster. That is a recipe for discouragement. We just have this, though, I mean, we want to microwave and fast drive through our repentance. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do, and I'll move on. And man, you've got you to work space in your life for this. And you've got to slow down, and you've got to come back to the gospel, and come back to the gospel, and come back to the gospel. Um, that would be a life that's worthy of imitation. Mark. My son just said to me yesterday, as we were working through his own repentance, I'll never do it again. And I said to him, you bet, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hold you to it, buddy. I said, yes, you will. I said, don't make a promise like that. And I go to God and say, I'll never do it again. Yeah. And God says, you bet. No. That's right. No. <laughs> Say it again. That I'm not even able to repent until God grants me that. Yeah. Because they did that power of our in, in a general way, that passage is saying. Yeah. In, in a general way, that, that passage is saying repentance must be granted. 
And that's what Acts confirms over and over as they are amazed that Gentiles are repenting. They say, well, perhaps God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. And um, So yes. But what's interesting there is the tool that God loves to use to grant per- repentance to those who are uh, in the snare of the devil is what kind of a servant? A gentle one. So if God is going to grant repentance to those who are stuck in unrepentance, he wants to use it through a man who is gentle. A bondservant. Yeah. That's the way the scripture also, it says that the kindness of God leads repentance. Romans 2.4. That's right. So, Scott, yeah. Dave, go for it. You're not saying that as believers with new hearts we have the ability to repent or not? Uh, maybe we should take a break. <laughs> well, I, just, no, I just assume that he was kind of addressing all believers there. Well, yeah, uh, I think I think in I think in Second Timothy two, I think he I think he is. There are some in that passage who think um, that Paul is talking about believers who have been somehow ensnared by a false teaching and things like that. I, I just don't think Paul ever uses that kind of language. With believers, so my position is, is I think he's speaking to unbelievers. So yeah, I think unbelievers definitely, obviously, need to be granted repentance. Um, for us as believers, are we equipped in the new man just by positional being placed in the new man to repent? Yeah, I think so. But I also want to say, oh my goodness. I am still extremely dependent upon the Lord in every situation to turn from my sin. If it was, if I, you know, I, I would, you know, I would say this: if indeed in the new man I have everything needed for repentance, then I don't need God. That's what I, I've been in our sanctification. I continually am praying to God yeah. repentance. Absolutely. It's a it, it's a it's 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 a different shade of granting of repentance, but it's still we need God, but not like we needed Him before, but we still as much need Him. Still, uh, it's different need, different expression, different shade of repentance. And now, Jerome, and then we'll move on. Uh, in repentance, the world of their repentance of turning from sin to another sin. <laughs> so for a believer, we have through true repentance because we have turned from our sin to Christ. And now our eyes are Christ, now we're to deal with sin, you know, the, daily, the, the stuff that our repentance is, because we have turned to him, you know. Yeah, that's good. That's right. So here's God's design for us, guys. Um, back in chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Um, God's design is that we give one another, get this, not just the gospel, Right? The word does need to come to you, but it needs to, the gospel needs to come to you not in word only, but also in a right kind of life. The gospel also needs to come through the right kind of man who can be an example, one to imitate. Paul says ministry involves imitation. Now, specifically in verse, five, uh, verse 6, he says how they did imitate Paul. Um, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. How? Well, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You receive the word in much tribulation. 
here's what we need to remember that I know that I so often forget, guys. We need to remind ourselves we live in enemy territory. Everywhere we step on this planet, we live in enemy territory. You do. Okay? Um, You need to remember that there is a rebel prince who is fighting against your king. He is the prince of the power of the air. And he has a whole bunch of sons of disobedience that walk with him and children of wrath following after him. You have to remember that in this world that you live in, there are very hostile rebels against the king. This is where we live. We need to, look, these are, these are truths that also need to be preached to our hearts every day too. That's where I live. Um, we live in a very volatile place. Um, and God's design and God's plan as the gospel goes forward is that the gospel is received by many in such a volatile place. And where they receive it, oftentimes it comes with tribulation. It comes with trouble. Paul had that, and he says that even specifically you became imitators of us in that, that you received the word in much tribulation, but you received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, get this. When was the last time you thought of tribulation and joy in the same thought? I think for many of us, they seem to be uh, mutually exclusive, right? If I have trouble, there could be no joy there. After the dark. Yeah, after. Later. Once it gets better, then there's joy. Um, But this says, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Um, Go back to John 15. I want to show you this. We'll take a break right after I show you... um, this, this, we finish this point here. John chapter 15. I want to I let you see this about joy, what Jesus said about joy. This is very interesting. John 15, 11. Jesus is with his disciples. You know, it's the last night. And he says, these things I have spoken to you so that, whose joy? My joy. Jesus' joy may be in you, and then as a result, your joy would be made full. You want to have fullness of joy? Well, the only way you're going to get that is if my joy is in you, Jesus says. So there's only one version of joy you can have. It's my joy. I think that would be the same as uh, the joy of the Holy Spirit as well. Go to John 16, verse 20. Same night, same dialogue going on. Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So get this. You're going to be crying. You're going to be weeping. The world's going to be partying. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one, no one will take your joy away from you. Why? What's your joy going to be rooted in? Christ raised from the dead. That's his joy. Um, how about, well, verse 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy will be made full. Go to chapter 17, verse 13. But now I come to you, he's praying to the Father now, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
I don't ask that you take them out of the world, just keep them from the evil one. So here he is saying there's going to be all kinds of trouble, grief, but you're going to have joy made full. Now, listen, I don't know about you, but I have a version of joy. I have a Scott version of joy. That joy I depend on far more than I should. And what I have found is that as soon as tribulation comes into my life, it just flicks my version of joy away and it's gone. Because my joy, my version of joy is incompatible with trouble. Incompatible with persecution. If I live for my joy that I have, that I define as joy, um, it doesn't exist where there's tribulation. And therefore I need a different kind of joy. Whose joy? I need Christ's joy. And I need that to be made full in me. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of me or does to me. That one, that joy cannot be taken away. And that is what Paul is saying here to disciples who weren't walking with Christ and sitting with him face to face in a room, but disciples years later in Thessalonica uh, who are uh, now getting the joy via the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 1. Do you remember this? Look back there with me. Let's go back there. You have received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's why Christ gives his joy. Trouble can't touch it. So you can plead to ultimately imitate Christ so as to be an an example to each other. And uh, one of the ways that that will come about is that there will be a joyful life centered on the word and on Christ in the midst of trouble. Okay. Now, they became imitators for a reason and for a purpose, and that's the fourth point, and we'll take a look at that one after we take a five-minute break. Okay? So let's do that. Take five minutes, and we'll come back and finish up the last two points. All right, so ministry has only one message. We know that from verse 5. But ministry with only one message requires a, a, an uncommon messenger, right? <coughs> It's supposed to be a certain kind of man that brings the gospel to people. That means that ministry is going to involve imitation, verse 6. But there is a, there's a reason or a purpose for that imitation, verse 7 and 8, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now, I'll just tell you this. If, if, any, if this passage does one thing for me, it... it shows me that how in ministry I settle for far too little. I have my mind set on such small things. I'll think of one really maybe good step, but what Paul is doing is Paul is outlining here a chain reaction of things that happen that you should set your eyes on. Um, I'll tell you what I mean here. I think this uh, verses 6 and 7 and into 8, it reveals that the imitation chain reaction that must take place in gospel ministry. Now, who is Paul imitating? He's imitating the Lord, right? We know that in his ministry. And then who is imitating Paul? We find out in verse 6. The Thessalonians are. What does verse 7 say? You Thessalonians became what? An example. You be, you imitators, you became an example to whom? Look at verse 7. To seven believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. To all the believers. 
Paul is uh, obviously speaking um, somewhat with some hyperbole here, right? It's, it's, he, many believers who were just overwhelmed with what had happened in Thessalonica. That's amazing. Paul imitated Christ and his expectation was, I'll be a certain kind of man, I'll prove to be a certain kind of thing, and you imitated us, but guess what? You became an example for others to follow. And I think this is something we can learn here that we should set our sights on for our gospel ministry, guys. Um, it is not enough that you merely be an example for another person. If you step into a discipleship relationship thinking, I just want to be an example for you to follow. You are not thinking big enough. Because when given the opportunity... The Spirit of God and the Gospel mission wants to go far beyond that. When you step into a discipleship relationship, you need to think, yes, I will be an example to you to follow my full expectation because God does this. Is that you, disciple? You will become an example for others to follow. You, you have to think beyond what you're doing. You have to be aware of what God's word wants to do on mission, what the gospel wants to do and accomplish. Aim for others who see your example. Aim for them to become an example to others. And guess how many times you'll hit that if you never aim at it? Goose egg. You don't hit what you're not aiming for. And so... I mean, what a great thing to be praying for your kids. Those of you who have them. Oh, wow. God, I want to be an example to my kids so that they might be an example to others. There's the purpose. And Paul then offers an explanation of this imitation chain reaction. Look at verse 8. Let me explain this. Uh, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in the region in which you sit, in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth. The word of the Lord sounded forth from you. The, the sounded forth, that verb, means an intense blast of the trumpet. It's like the call to battle. A whole bunch of soldiers and a huge army are sitting around and there's all kinds of noise going on, blah, 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 clank, clank, everything. You hear all kinds of noise, and then all of a sudden there's a, a distinct sound that pierces through all of the other ones, and every one of them recognizes as a soldier, it's time to move. I know what that sound is. It's distinct. It cuts through the air. It's a trumpet blast. It's calling us to war. Paul uses that kind of imagery, that your faith, or the word of the Lord, sounded forth from you. It, it cut through all of the other sounds in life, and it, it stood out sharply to others. Paul doesn't say, the word of the Lord from us did that. Paul says, the word of the Lord from you did that. It sounded forth from you. It's a distinct sounding forth of the word of God from them. And then notice how far the biblical blast went, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. What a solid, effective sounding forth of the gospel from them. And I'll tell you what, 
that happened all pretty relatively quickly. Um, most likely, Paul was probably there for a few months in Thessalonica. I know that in Acts it says that he was there for three Sabbaths, but there's evidence in his other letters that uh, there was a letter received or passed on from while Paul was there, and he would have had to be there longer than three weeks for that to happen. So here's he's, he's preached the gospel, and he's got three-month-old disciples who are imitating him, but who have now become an example to others. Aim high for those that you minister to. Um, as you become small group leaders, or if you are small group leaders in this church, you need to be thinking of this kind of thing as you minister to people in your small group. This should be your expectation. Become an example worthy for them to imitate, but have an expectation that they will become an example for others to follow and that God's word will sound forth from them. And here is the key statement in verse 8 of how effective this sounding forth was and their example. Look what Paul says. How does it end? So that we, the missionary team, on mission. I, I, there's nothing more I can add. We have no need to say anything. Paul says he has nothing left to say. That is an amazing statement for Paul to say, I, I would like to add something worthy to the dialogue that's going on in and around the area, but you know what? There's nothing I could add to it. It's already come forth that clearly, that loudly, that effectively from you, you Thessalonians. Their lives were so thoroughly transformed and they were so effective in what they were imitating and the example that they set and the sounding forth of the word of God they were so effective that Paul, by the time he even started saying, oh, wait till you hear about what happened in Thessalonica when we were with you. When we were with these guys, they were saying, oh, 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 yeah. We already heard what kind of reception that you had among them. Chapter 2, do you see that? Um, where is that verse? Oh, no, no it's, it's back in chapter 1. Oh, verse 9. They themselves report about us. What kind of reception we had with you. I, I started to tell them about how it went with you guys, and, and I, well, I didn't even need to finish the story because, I, in fact, I couldn't add anything to it because they already heard about it from you. That's amazing. All right, so um, here's something to aim for and pray about. Think about, think about this, what we've covered in these first four points, okay? If you think about gospel ministry, your gospel ministry, in this church, beyond this church, in your family, wherever it may be, in your household, here's what you're aiming for. You are not aiming merely to dump gospel content on people. You are not merely wanting the word to go forth from you. Oh, you want the word to go forth from you, but just not the word only. Secondly, you need to be aiming to become an uncommon gospel messenger, right? That's number two, right? You're aiming for that in your gospel ministry. And thirdly, to not merely be an example. Yes, you want to be an example to them, but not merely be an example. 
Not merely thinking, you know, I just hope a whole bunch of people imitate me. But this, I want my disciples, listen carefully, I want my disciples to put me out of my job. I want men that I train to go much further than I could ever go. I want them to have a broader stage than me. I want them to be more effective than me. I want them to be so well-tuned and grounded into the gospel that I could try to open my mouth and there'd be nobody who'd listen to me because it'd be old news. Can I preach study? Why not? Why not? You know what? It'd be one of the first relaxing Saturdays I've had in a while. So... But you see, I mean, that, that how far we aim, what we're aiming for. I can think of my unbelieving family, and I can think, oh God, for 25 years I've been praying for them. And my prayer is that you would open a door for me to, to open my mouth and give them the gospel. Amen. We can pray that, and we should pray that. That's just the opening statement of prayer. It then means to, why not think beyond that? Why not set for us a, a bullseye that is so big that only God could do that? Only God could make me into the kind of man who is imitatable, and only God can work in such a way that as they imitate me, they become examples to others, and only God can work in such a way that those who are as an example to others, are so effective in what they're doing that i I, I got to go turn to another direction to go minister because they've been so effective. Let's pray for things that only God can do in our ministry. So, ministry has only one message, the gospel. Number two, ministry requires an uncommon messenger. Number three, ministry involves imitation. Fourthly, ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. And then lastly, and this is an awkward statement, and I have, for four years, tried to figure out a better one, and I don't know how to say it better, so we'll, we'll start with what's cumbersome, and then we'll hopefully make it make sense. Ministry receptivity labors for repentance. L- let me look at verse 9. They themselves report about us. Who, who are the they themselves? Well, you've got to go back into verse 8. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves, who are the they themselves? It's not the Thessalonians. It's those who are in Macedonia and Achaia. They themselves report about us. Now, um, interesting here, they have a report. They themselves report. They have a report that is contains two elements to it. Look at it. What do what they report? Verse 9. They report about us, what kind of reception we had among you or with you. And, number two, what do they report? How you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So two parts of the report. Let's look at the first one. First, they reported, the believers in the Macedonian and Achaia area, they themselves report what kind of reception we had with you. That word reception means a welcoming, 
And this is where I get the word receptivity. They report about how receptive our interaction was with you. How welcoming we were, how receivable we were to you. Okay? So Paul here is emphasizing how important, again, listen, he's emphasizing how important the messenger is. The messenger was received. The messenger was welcomed. Paul's putting the emphasis on this. And that's what went out and was reported. What stood out was, oh my goodness, the kind of interaction that the Thessalonians had with you, Paul, and your missionary team, it was amazing. What a welcoming time that was you had with them. That's the report. His manner among them, Paul's manner, the missionary's team's uh, manner among the Thessalonians, the kind of man that he and the, and the, the, the team proved to be among them, their behavior among them, get this, it wasn't an obstacle for the gospel. It wasn't an obstacle for the gospel. Actually, it was a powerful compliment for the gospel. The gospel wants to bring about repentance. God wants to bring repentance through the gospel. He just wants it to come with the right kind of guy, the right kind of people. But that's not all that um, was reported. What else was reported in verse 9? How you Thessalonians turned to God. There's repentance. Turn to God from idols. You turned from God to idols, and you got a couple of infinitives here. One, to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven. That, that's interesting right there. We, we get the, yeah, you know what we should be doing in this life? We should be serving the living and true God. Yeah, we should be doing that. Do you, also, do you ever think of your Christian life now as waiting? Waiting for his son from heaven? The one that he raised from the dead? That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come? There's a, there's a wrath coming on this planet. We're waiting for that one to rescue us from it. We've, have we been rescued? Yes. Are we being rescued? Yes. Will we be rescued? Yes. Salvation is very thick and deep and wide. But the report is how you turn to God from idols. Here's repentance. In the minds of, of the witnesses who, who heard this and saw it, the Macedonians, the Achaeans, the believers in every place, in their minds, these witnesses... Um, or in the minds of these witnesses, two things stood out in the report. How welcomed Paul was, how well-received Paul was, how receivable he was, and how repentant the Thessalonians were. Do you get this? This is amazing. What stood out in their minds were two things. Paul, what an amazing interaction you had with them. And you know what? They repented. They were pagans just like us, worshiping idols. And they turned from them to serve the living and true God, and they're waiting for his son from heaven to come. That's what stood out in our mind, how receivable you were with them, and they repented. Now, here's the awkward statement. Your ministry receptivity, listen, you want to be received in your ministry with people. You want to have your ministry be received, but it only matters if they repent. So you aim to be received among those that you're ministering the gospel to. Aim to be received by them, but it must labor for something 
What is, what is your receivableness being laboring towards? Oh, please repent. Repent. I think for the most part, we probably can focus too easily on um, the first part, just we want to be well-liked. I want to have a favorable interaction with you. I want to be welcomed into your life. We want a, that kind of report circulating out there about us. How receivable we are. We're just nice guys. But the Macedonians and the Achaeans and others couldn't only think of that element of Paul's gospel ministry. They simultaneously thought of repentance. What does turning to God from idols look like? Serving God, waiting for his son's return. So your receptivity in your gospel ministry, it needs to labor for repentance, guys. These guys were transformed. The kind of repentance where there's real transformation. Gospel repentance, gospel transformation. They don't serve dead idols anymore, dead gods. They serve the living and true God, and they're waiting for a son. So if all you are in your gospel ministry is just likable, you're just a really likable guy in your gospel ministry, um, and other people don't actually change, you should be very dissatisfied. Well-liked, but people aren't changing. There's something yet that your heart should be broken about that you don't yet see that you want. There's something incomplete in that. Because until repentance and transformation comes, you can't be satisfied only with how well-received you are. Does that make sense? Now, plan to be nice. Plan to be kind men. Plan to be likable. Look, there's no, there's no virtue in waking up and saying, I don't, I don't care what people think about me. Paul doesn't think that way in one sense. In another sense, he does. It doesn't matter if you, to me if you examine me or any court. But in that, Paul's not saying, I don't care what people think about me. Paul cares about what people think about him. He's defending himself to the Thessalonians about the kind of man that he was. So plan to be nice, plan to be kind, plan to be likable, plan for people to welcome you into your life. But, oh, you've got to aim for repentance in the gospel. And if you only have one message, then you have only one response to that one message, which is repent. And uh, Tom earlier brought up 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. The Lord's bondservant must be a certain kind of man. Why? If perhaps God might grant them repentance. You see, God links the repentance of those who are stuck in sin he links it to the kind of gospel messenger that comes. That's an amazing thing. Those of us who love the sovereignty of God, who love the sovereignty that God grants repentance. Listen, he has a very manly, human, fleshly tool he uses. I don't mean fleshly in the sense of, of, of sinful. I just mean man. He uses a certain kind of man. you got to be that kind of man. You've got to be that kind of man. We must be those kinds of men, guys. Avoid being a jerk preaching repentance. 
right? And don't be satisfied to be liked without evidence of repentance. You know what Paul is emphasizing here? If if you want to see if you want to see people repent, there's only there's there's two key things you have to lay out in front of them in your in your ministry. And you can't miss either one of them. They both go together. One is is you need to lay out uh, well there is a substitute who was sacrificed bloodily so and wrath was satisfied and guilt and shame and sin was taken away and repentant belief. Repentance won't come without that. Is that true? And be a certain kind of man to those people. Right? The Lord's bondservant must be gentle. Must be kind, must be patient when wronged. Must be able to correct those who are in opposition. Why? Well, God, God may want to grant repentance. The, 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 the messenger is not the gospel. The messenger is the messenger. But God makes repentance contingent on both. Do you see that? So don't be satisfied with one or the other. Be satisfied only with both in your gospel ministry. This is what you aim for. This is what you shepherd your heart, shepherd your home, and when you turn them to step into people's lives, you are thinking about the gospel, and I must be an uncommon man. Does this make sense? Yeah. 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 And there are a lot of people offended by what Paul said. The Jews followed him from one town to the other. And the interesting thing is, they did both things. What did they attack? They attacked the message and they attacked the messenger. They weren't. Isn't this interesting? The children of the devil are not satisfied to attack only one part. Why? Because the devil knows what God uses. So let's malign the gospel. Let's let's work some works righteousness in it. And let's talk about how Paul came with flattery, how he came with with a a pretext for greed. He's a hypocrite. Let's attack the messenger and let's attack the message. So what do we must, what's, what's the answer? Get the message right and get the man right. Be the right kind of man. Right? Now when we come back next year, um, we are going to look at chapter 2 because Paul is going to continue on and we'll do another set of observations through chapter 2.